Welcome to the Celebration Church podcast. You're about to hear a message from Pastor Dennis Vardy called Heaven on Earth, and it speaks about how over and over again throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus introduces parables with these words, the kingdom of heaven is like. So what does the expression kingdom of heaven mean? How is it relevant to our lives today? And what do the parables tell us about living a life relevant to the kingdom of heaven? Find out and enjoy today's message. Five weeks ago, we began a series called Heaven on Earth, looking through the gospel of Matthew, where Jesus repeatedly would say, the kingdom of God is like. And then he would give a parable to present what it's like. When he was saying that, he wasn't talking about going to heaven. He was talking about what it means to live in a relationship here on earth with Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Him being the king and us following him in our lives. What does that look like? And uh, we, you know, we had Thanksgiving, of course, last week. I hope you ate way too much food and enjoyed yourself. But uh, this week, we're going to pick up on the second half of this, of this particular series that we started looking at what it means to live life in the kingdom of God. Um, do you remember when you were a child and there was something you really, 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 really wanted? And it was like, you would just do anything to get that thing. It was just something that really was just, it was on your radar and you would just go for it. I remember for me, I think it was my first bike that I bought. Um, I had an older hand-me-down bike. A friend of mine had this other bike and it was like a two-speed. So I thought that was really cool. And now you're wondering like, how old is this guy to celebrate two speeds on a bicycle, whatever. But I'm just saying it was one of these bikes where if you just put the brakes on real quick, you change gears and you could go faster. So I thought, faster is good. Um, uh, it was great. And it was, I had my eye on one of these bikes. It had the big high handlebars. It had the banana seat with the sissy bar in the back. And for all of you who that language means something to you, I'm so glad you are here to hear that. Um, millennials are suffering right now, not knowing what we're talking about. But at any rate, so my parents used that opportunity to teach me about, you know, working, making money, saving money to be able to buy something and all of those good things. And, and I was just like totally focused on, on getting this and, and making, making that happen. Matthew 13, 44 says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has, and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding the one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything that he had, and he bought it. Why would anybody do that? Why would you sell everything that you have so that you can spend everything that you have in order to buy a field with a treasure in it? Why would you sell everything that you have in order to spend everything you have to buy this one pearl that you want? Well, for the same reason I would go all out as a kid to buy that bike. It's because it was in my heart and it was because of love. It was because, man, that's what my affection was sent on. That's what this is talking about. It's talking about the connection of love that happens between us and the Lord. Our relationship with Jesus is a covenant-based love, based on love, rather, not a contract based on rules. This is so important for you to understand. 
The decision to follow Christ is motivated by love. The only reason to go all in like it's describing in these parables is because of love. That is it. 1 John 4.19 says we love because what? He first loved us. What Jesus is highlighting here about his kingdom is this is how people connect in my kingdom. They, they fall in love with me. It's a response of love and they go all in and it becomes their highest value in life is Jesus. You know, the kingdom of God isn't magic kingdom. You know, magic kingdom, you go and you visit. Have a good time. See you later. Maybe I'll come back again. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God isn't something that you visit from time to time, but it's a relationship that you welcome into your life and that you live with throughout your entire life. That's why in the Bible, one of the best comparisons and the comparison that the Bible uses to understanding a covenant relationship with God is actually marriage. The scriptures use marriage because it is the closest human relationship to give you a picture of what a relationship with Jesus Christ is meant to look like. You know, throughout the Bible, marriage is the illustration. The Bible talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus returns for his church, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. Sin in the Bible is called adultery. Why? Because it's breaking your covenant with God. And so marriage becomes this illustration, this tangible human illustration where we can look at that and go, that's what it means to walk with Jesus. Think about marriage vows, marriage vows. I take you, singular, focus. I take you to have and to hold, uh, you know, forsaking all others. In other words, there's no other options. I'm choosing you, no other options for better, for worse in good times and bad times, in sickness and in health. Doesn't matter what's going on, I'm still with you till death do us part. I don't think anybody got married just because I said that, by the way, but I'm just repeating that in case. But that's what our marriage vows look like. It's the singular, lifelong covenant. And what motivates, think about the level of dedication. It's like, I choose you for life. Man, it's not like going out and buying a car. You know, you buy that car, you know one day it's gonna be done. Go get another one, not marriage. It's for life. It's like, and you say, why would somebody do that? Because of love, because of love. Because that's what love does and that's what love looks like. Love is why you forsake all others. There's no other options. Love is why you stick it out when things are challenging. Love is why you make a lifelong commitment in the first place. And you know what? That's exactly what it's meant to look like when it comes to walking with Jesus. You know, here's the thing about marriage. You don't review the costs with each other. You know, you don't sit around and have conversations about you know, it's cost me a lot to stay in this marriage. You realize this? Do you have any idea of the things I go through? Um, you don't have conversations about the other person that you could have married, but I went ahead and chose you anyway. I had some options, but... You know, you don't go around thinking about what it's costing you or how you might be inconvenienced, etc. Why? Because marriage isn't a contract, it's a covenant. In a contract, you think that way. 
You think give and take. You think, what am I getting? What am I giving? You know, all the rest of it. But a covenant is based on love. You just don't think that way. You just don't look at things that way. Love is the foundation of a covenant relationship, and that's what marriage is. Marriage is not a contract. And I, I think sad to say that in our culture, too many people enter it as if it was. They enter it, and then, you, then only to discover later that they had some yeah buts inside their heart when it should have been a covenant they were coming into, not a, not a contract. Contracts are all about decisions, or all about conditions, I should say, but covenants are not. And just like marriage should be unconditional, our relationship with Christ should be exactly the same way, where it's like, I am following Jesus for life. Love will always lead you to make your highest commitment. It will. Love connects with our heart, and out of our heart, we will make our highest commitments in life motivated by love, motivated by passion. People will make great sacrifices and dedications that are all motivated by love. They love what they do. They love what they experience. They love the results of what they're, what they're into. Love will always make its highest commitment. The highest commitments you make, rather, in life are motivated by love. Well, covenant is all about the heart. God made a covenant with us because he loves us. And then we embrace that covenant out of love. In Matthew 6, 21, it says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the question comes, what came first, the heart or the treasure? Well, the heart did. The heart leads the treasure. The heart leads what you invest your life um, into. You know, if you don't have it settled in your heart, that your relationship with the Lord is a covenant relationship, then what are you gonna do when your prayers are not answered the way you thought they should be? Why don't you think about that? I think that's a good question because I think in the situation we're in right now, there's a lot of people who have prayers that are not being answered the way they feel they should be. What are you going to do when things in life surprise you or don't turn out like you had expected? I mean, we all have expectations. That's just human. There's nobody that prays for things to happen in their life that doesn't have something going on in their mind that sort of says, well, God, it would be great if you did it this way, you know, and, and just we, we have that. That's, that's human. That's our nature. That's, that's the way we are. What are you going to do when life surprises you and things don't turn out as expected? What are you going to do when things are happening in your life that you don't understand? Can't put your finger on it. Can't figure it out. See, these are things that can expose if you have a contract mentality or a covenant mentality when it comes to walking with Jesus. You see, if you feel like God didn't hold up his end of the deal, you'll stop trusting him. You'll stop following with faith in his faithfulness, which by the way, sometimes that's the only faith you might have. The situation may not look good, it's not turning, it's not changing, and the only faith that you can have is faith in the fact that our God is a faithful God, so regardless of what I see going on around me right now, I know God is gonna come out on top. This isn't a theory, by the way. This actually happens in believers' lives. Somewhere along the way, they thought God was gonna do something in their life 
and they had it all worked out in their mind, but it didn't happen. Then their relationship with the Lord became all about how God failed them. So they feel justified in walking away, losing their faith, and then treating their walk with God like a failed contract instead of realizing it was never a contract in the first place, it was a covenant. Or they think God's plan was messed up by some people that were involved in their situation. And what those people did caused them to mess up on what their expectations were of how God was gonna work in their life. And now they're all bitter about these people, you know, bitter about their situation, you know, and here's the problem. They're not believing that God was bigger than the people that were around them. And let me tell you something, God is always bigger than anybody who could get in the road of your destiny and he can get you to where he wants you in spite of who's around you. To get bitter at people and decide I'm not doing what I think God wants me to do because of this person, this person, this person, you got a really small Jesus you're serving. What if they had kept trusting? You know, what, what if, they, because you know what? That's what love does. What if they had kept trusting? What if they had just kept believing? Because that's what faith does. What if they had just kept seeking the Lord and letting God guide their life? Because that's what you do when you're in a covenant relationship. What if quitting wasn't an option? Listen, Jesus was the treasure in the field. Jesus is the pearl of great price. If you've got that, you've got it all. Everything else that happens in life is extra. Because of love, I am free from competing interests and demands. Because of love, I am free from competing interests and demands. You can't buy Jesus or salvation. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. It isn't earned. However, you have to give up everything in your life to make room for what God wants to do with you. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, here's the deal with, the, with those parables that Jesus shared. You can't buy the treasure, but to have it, you have to buy the field. And you can't buy the field without selling all that you own. You know, according to Jewish law, if you bought a field and there was a treasure in it, you automatically own the treasure because you bought the field. But that's only if you sell everything else you got because that's what it's gonna take for you to buy the field. You gotta sell it all and you gotta buy it all in order to get the treasure. The reason many people are frustrated and not having the experience with God that they feel they should be having is simply this. They haven't bought the field, but they're trying to act like they got the treasure. Yeah, I'm not all in, but I want God to do everything he can do for me. I'm holding back, but I expect God will be generous with me. I'm not free from other ambitions, but I want God to set me free of my habits. I have other priorities, but I want God to make me his priority. Listen, God already made you his priority when he went and died on a cross for you and rose from the grave. You're already his priority. Now he's asking, will you make me your priority? 
And the only way you can do that is you got to buy the whole field. You got to be all in. When you give your whole life to Christ and sell out for Jesus, you get everything that is in the treasure that is Jesus. You get it all. You can't buy Jesus. You can't buy salvation. You can't buy the promises of God. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. You can't buy healing. You can't buy freedom. You can't buy deliverance. You can't buy joy, peace, or the love of God. You can't buy your destiny. You can't buy a new beginning in life. You can't buy the presence of God in your life. You can't buy the kind of faith that'll move mountains. You can't buy answered prayers. You can't buy the wisdom of God. But all of that is freely given to you if you buy the field and you get the treasure. If you buy the field, it's going to cost you everything. You know, after he bought the field, there wasn't any money left over to buy anything else. He had to spend it all. After he bought the pearl, he couldn't afford to go out and buy some other pearls. He spent it all. He had nothing left. He'd spent it all for that one pearl. The point is this. There's no room for distractions such as competing passions, competing interests, and competing priorities when it comes to following Jesus. Jesus' world isn't hobby world. He becomes your world. Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. I'm not going to read the whole thing all the way to 33. We'll leave some of the illustration out, but you get the point. A large crowds, large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking, Jesus, did you have to tweet that? We had great crowds. I can't believe you said that, but we'll figure this out in a moment. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he gave some illustration. Then he concludes with this. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Strong words. What do they mean? When Jesus says, unless you hate and enlist all these people, that word hate literally means this, by comparison of your love for me. In other words, your love for God is so high that the opinion of others, it would, the gap would almost be considered hate in, in regards to emotionally how you would picture this. There's no, there's no way, there's no place for the opinion of others to interfere with your passion to follow Jesus. That's really what he's saying right there. There's no competing voices. There's nobody else's opinion getting lifted up, including yours, over the word of God in your life. Then he goes on to say, and give up all your own possessions. Jesus, should I have a yard sale? No. Here's what he's saying. It's the same kind of context. It's about attitude of heart. I have possessions, but my possessions don't have me. So there's no competing interests. There's no competing interests. Uh, and, and you know what? Competing interests, a lot of times, are pretty easy to discern in our life. I mean, you just have to look at the stewardship of your money and of your time, and you can tell what a person is committed to. It's that simple. The priority of Christ and his kingdom should be obvious by the stewardship of our money and of our time. Amen. Or does your life just seem to sort of fit Jesus in somewhere from time to time? 
Now, this is clear, and this is typically really easy to discern. But what about the competing voices? Competing voices. Man, these can be very obvious if you have people around you who are just simply criticizing your commitment to Christ and, and, and who are just you know speaking against it, questioning it, whatever it may be. Sometimes those competing voices are really obvious, but, but we have... You know, we follow Jesus and, and we make decisions out of our love for the Lord, but we have other relationships in our life of people that we love too. And at times, that can come in to conflict. The Apostle Paul noted that conflict in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, am I now seeking the favor of people or of God? He realized, man, there seems to be this competition almost for my attention. Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. Paul's saying, listen, if, I, if I'm going to try and keep everybody happy, I can't even follow Jesus doing that. Paul is recognizing he can't have a competing voice, a competing agenda, and keep everybody happy while he's following the Lord. If you're going through your life and constantly aware of who might not like your choices and how they may react, that is not heaven on earth. That is hell. Now, I'm not talking about you being offensive or rude or disrespectful or anything like that. What I am saying is that following Jesus should be free from checking in mentally for the permission of others. Jesus is with Peter, and he's, he makes a comment to him about the fact that he's going to die and and, you know, raised from the grave and all this. And, and Peter's like, no way, we're not going there. We can't do that. And then Jesus turns to Peter. What's he say? Get behind me, Satan. I'm sure Peter was like, who's standing behind me? That can't be for me, can it? And then he says this, you've got your mind. You don't have your mind on God's interests. You just have them on man's. Here's another way that we can elevate distracting voices in our life. And this one can tend to go under the radar a little bit in our world. That is this. We elevate other voices as the unintended consequence of listening to gossip and offended people. I'm telling you, gossip and offended people will get you off course. It's the unintended consequence you might have thought you were helping a friend. You might have thought you were just being a shoulder to cry on, all the rest of it. But instead, you were actually a pail to dump garbage into. You can say it doesn't matter, but if you have somebody who's gossiping around you uh, or you have them speaking out of their unresolved offense, which, by the way, they need to go back and resolve, what happens is that you partner with their opinion, and that can make make you make choices contrary to what's God's best interest for your life. You are leaning into perhaps a voice of offense, a voice of pride, a voice of judgment, a voice of criticism, and it's a distraction competing with the freedom of a life lived that doesn't hear that junk in the first place. You might not have an issue with people pleasing normally, but taking in gossip or listening to offense will cause you to become a people pleaser. Now the story of their gossip has become your story. It's a rumor. It's only one side. It's only one perspective. Now the offense that they have picked up has become your offense because instead of sending them to go get it resolved, 
They shared it with you. This can pull on your life in a way that it never should have and, and, and wouldn't have had if you had not have listened. And the best way to explain it is like secondhand smoke. You know, they do all these tests and they found out that cigarettes can give you cancer. They put warnings on the packages, all the rest of it. But you know, eventually they did all these tests and they found out if you're in an environment where you're taking in secondhand smoke, it's just as bad for you as, as the person who's smoking. It's the same thing with gossip and offended people. When they're speaking out of the smoke that's in their life, that stuff gets inside of you. And guess what? You're getting the same impact as though you were the offended person. Proverbs 18.8 says, the words of a gossiper are like dainty morsels and they go down to the innermost parts of the body. What Proverbs is saying is that gossip can get into your heart and what gets into your heart leads your life. Now that has happened to you. If that's happened to you, you're elevating somebody else's words to a place of influence that they should never have in your life. All I wanna say about that is this. Be discerning, be discerning. Listen, route people back to who they're offended with rather than listening to their story. Remember that every word of gossip and accusation always has another side to the story. Don't ever look at it as the truth. Last part is this. Fear and shame are the hindrances to both loving God and experiencing being loved by him. Fear and shame are the hindrances to both loving God and experiencing being loved by him. In these parables, there's this, this unashamed, unafraid boldness that's in them. Man, the guy who wants, to, who wants that treasure, he, he just sells everything, gets his money, he buys the field. The guy who wants the pearl, sells it all, buys that pearl. There's no second thought. There's no, am I worthy? Do I deserve this? You know, who am I to buy this field? Um, there's no self-conscious behavior whatsoever. First John chapter four and verse eight says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. You know what? Fear and shame are the enemy of love. It's distorted and a corrupt view about walking with God when fear is in play. When, there, when, it's, when your thoughts about walking with the Lord are, well, uh, uh, you know, fear of punishment, um, you know, fear of hell, uh, fear of retribution, fear of getting out of God's favor, all these kinds of things. Can I tell you something? That's the exact thinking that a culture of pagan religion has. That's how pagans thought. That's, that's what their culture was like. It's like, are the gods angry? We gotta keep the gods happy. It was that that kind of, literally, that kind of thinking. That's why if you look in pagan cultures, they're, they're always like sacrificing all these things to get God's favor on their life. And, and, and it's a pagan idea. It's not Christian at all. And sad to say, there, there are people that would call themselves Christians, but they still live with this mentality of, of, of fear, of maybe I step out of line, maybe God's not on my side, and all the rest of it. Fear will mess you up on experiencing the love of God. You're going around thinking, what are the rules? What do I have to do? Have I crossed the line? And you look at your Bible, instead of opening up the Bible as a relationship book, you open it up and read it as a rule book. 
Then you begin to think, what do I need to do to get God to act on my behalf? And people who go to, go to prayer, it's like, I, I need to pray for this. I'm not getting a breakthrough. Maybe there's something I need to do to get more of God's favor. Maybe I need to, you know, and, and looking at their performance, afraid that they've stepped out of the favor of God. Let me tell you something. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, the favor of God came all over you right there. It was already settled. God's favor was already settled. You say, is God angry? Nope, that all got taken care of at the cross too. God's favor came on you through the cross. Fear involves punishment. You know, shame is a form of fear. Why? Because I'm afraid I'll be embarrassed. I'm afraid I'll be belittled. I'm afraid I'll be known or I'm afraid of being transparent. Shame will leave you feeling bad about yourself when you've done nothing wrong. You don't have to do anything. You just, it's like, well, I need to go and pray. And you go to spend time with God and you already feel bad about yourself. You're already like, oh, something's gotta be wrong. I don't feel, I don't feel right about myself. And all, it's just shame. When fear and shame are in play, you will become more conscientious of your failures and your shortcomings than you are of God's acceptance and God's approval of you. And when you come before God, man, you should be coming before God with an absolute assurance, an absolute confidence, an absolute knowing that you are right. Sadly, sometimes, this is literally how churches have taught people to, to be in terms of their walk with God. You're a sinner, you're not worthy. You know, um, when you pray, you should start with confessing all of your sin and, and, and that ought to be how you, how you come to God because there's gotta be things that are wrong in your life. And you know, if something's not going right in your life, there's gotta be some sin. It's, and churches have just created sometimes this, this condemnation, unworthy, out of God's favor, I must have messed up, thinking. It's like, how the heck do you have a relationship with God? You're going around thinking like that about yourself all the time. And building this awareness that just focuses on sin instead of an awareness that focuses on God's love and God's favor. Listen, the foundation to receiving God's love is knowing your absolute acceptance. The foundation for trusting God to bring his promises to pass in your life is knowing you are right with him and there is nothing that you need to do to earn his approval. There is, if, if you have thoughts that plague you about what I need to do to get God's favor, get God's approval, here, here's, what, here's the lie. The lie is this. Jesus went to the cross, but you need to do something on top of that. Listen, Christ on the cross took care of it all. It settled the approval question. There's nothing that we need to do except embrace, believe, and receive. Hebrews tells us we come before God with confidence, not come before God with a confession. I know I'm stepping on some of your religious ideas, killing some holy cows. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we what? Might become the righteousness of God in him. I love how it words it. It doesn't just say we become a better person. We become forgiven. We become right. It, it, it puts a qualifier in when it says of God. Righteousness of God. In other words, you can't get any, any more righteous. It's as high as it goes. It doesn't say that we become perfect, but it says that we're having been perfectly accepted. 
perfectly forgiven, perfectly paid for, perfectly made right with God, and perfect in the sight of God because of Christ. The righteousness of God. Would you stand as we take some time to pray? I, I want to I take a moment to pray for people that struggle with that sense of shame, that struggle with, it's like, you know, I want to I go and pray, but, you know, I just feel like there must be something wrong in my life. There must be something I need to confess or I, I just, I don't feel worthy. I, I, feel, I feel bad about myself and I can't put my finger on it. That's shame, that's condemnation. And if that's something that you, you struggle with and maybe, maybe even, unfortunately, you grew up in a Christian background that sort of preached this condemning gospel, if you will, this you're never good enough gospel uh, that just leaves you feeling like you're, you're a sinner saved by grace, but they emphasize the word sinner instead of emphasizing grace. And maybe that's something that still bothers you, that still plagues you, that still, you know, is still there in your heart. We can pick up these things and carry them for years. Things that were said that reflect more like God's kind of angry with you. You better watch yourself. That, that kind of disposition rather than Jesus took care of it all. God loves you as you are. He accepts you. He walks with you through life. And you get to, as it says in Hebrews, come boldly before the throne. With their heads bowed. How many would say, Pastor, that whole shame thing, feeling unworthy, all that touches my life? Can you give me a wave? Just give me a wave of this, you. It's quite a few hands. I'm gonna pray with you. I wanna believe God for the Holy Spirit to touch your life right now and set you free. I want you to know something. God loves you the way you are. God loves you knowing that you're still gonna make mistakes. And here's why. He's a covenant-keeping God. He does not have a contract with you. He has a covenant with you. And it'll never change. Jesus, I pray for those people who responded right now. Father, I just command the spirit of shame and fear off of their life. Lord, I, I pray your Holy Spirit would just touch their heart. That God, that they would know how much you love them, how you accept them, how, Lord, they've been made right with you because of Jesus. Lord, may their, their attention be taken off of their imperfection and put on your perfection. Lord, we just break the lie of the enemy that says there's something else you need to do to get in God's favor. Lord, we receive God's favor. We don't achieve it. And right now, Father, I just declare the favor of God over these people. I declare freedom from condemnation and shame, freedom from that, that nagging feeling that something must be wrong when everything was made right in Christ. And Lord, I pray that they would be touched by the love of God. With their heads still bowed, I wanna pray one more prayer. This parable talks about having the treasure, but you gotta buy the field. And I talked a little bit earlier about, you know, some people are trying to get the benefits of the treasure, but really haven't sold out to buy the field. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're that person who's had things where you, you just kind of held back, haven't fully surrendered to Christ to receive him into your life. You you've held back on, well, God, you, you can run my life, but this area here, I think I'll run this area. No, 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 no. You've got to sell out. You've got to sell out. 
I'm interested in Jesus, but I have other interests. No, no, you've got to sell out. It's got to be all about Christ, his kingdom, and God's purposes for your life. And when you do, the beauty, beauty of that is you do get to experience the benefits of the treasure, the kingdom, the purposes of God, the leading of his Holy Spirit into an amazing life you could never have if you hadn't bought the field. Right now, I want to pray with you. Maybe there's people here listening to me and people in this room where it's like, today I need to buy the field. I need to go full on for Jesus. And if that's you, I just invite you to pray along with us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you gave your whole life. You didn't hold back when you went to the cross and paid for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I invite you into my life. I confess you as my Lord and my Savior, and I'll follow you with all of my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from our series, Heaven on Earth. If you're wanting to know more about Celebration Church or you would like to partner with us financially, visit our website at celebrationedmonton.com and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook at Celebration EDM. Come back next week to hear another great message.